In the bonus room, Wiff talks about how he risked so much to start rhythm and brass, playing with the Dallas and Houston symphonies, and finally he talks about the legacy of Ryan Anthony. You know, you mentioned rhythm and brass, and I'd sort of like to make a segue into your, your playing career. And one thing that, at least to me, is, is really inspiring uh, is if you could tell the story about, I don't know if you want to talk about the breakup of the Dallas Brass, but anyway, Dallas Brass, for whatever reason, broke up, and you decided you were going to start this new group called Rhythm and Brass. And like you, I can't imagine anybody going more all in than you did. I mean, you bet the farm <laughs> almost literally. <laughs> so right. yeah, I mean, to me that that's amazing. I mean, it's really talking about having a vision and no plan B, this is it. So could you tell that story and about the credit cards and all that kind of stuff? Oh, sure. I think it's yeah. a great, for me at least, it's a great story. Right. Well, you know, and I was with the Dallas Brass for eight years and, um, I mean, it was a fantastic time and, you know, a lot of it's a business and a lot of businesses run a certain course and I'm happy that Dallas Brass is still in business. And, um, um, and, and it was an incredible training time, both as a musician and uh, to be immersed in business, in the music business, something that nobody in my generation really trained for, you know, as players. So I learned so much and was so grateful for that. And it kind of ran its course and we, we came to some differences. Uh, and so as it turned out, four of us <clears throat> left the group. So that's two thirds of the group. And it was, it was sad. It was not easy. It was not an easy change. And, uh, and it was disappointing because uh, yeah, it was kind of a, it was a, for many years was a dream come true, you know, and it was kind of sandwiched in a, in the middle of my teaching career. So personally, it was a really powerful time. Uh, so it came to an end and we were just encouraged by a lot of people to give it another shot. We really didn't want to do it. Uh, it was just cause that would be expensive <laughs> and difficult, but we had so many people, uh, cheering us on. We thought, well, we just need to go for it. So, um, being the kind of the senior guy and the, the, you know, with older kids and my wife had been involved somewhat helping me in the Dallas brass business that I did. We just kind of all met and we talked to two buddies who might be willing to help us out. And we decided to give it a shot. And there, I'd looked at getting small business loans, this and that, and there was no money to be had. And, uh, and tell so, me what you needed the money for. We needed the money to, to pay for getting together to rehearse. We lived all across the country. We hired a couple of friends. We insisted on paying them because uh, this was our dream. And we, if they wanted to join in later, it'd be great. So we found two buddies that were willing to put in two years with us. Um, we, we did the basic principle of we acted as if everything was going to work out. Um, that's what any great new business decides to do. And what that means, finding out how to act. How does a, a, a successful company act? And so that's how you have to act while you're building it. And what's it going to look like? You have to look like that. So we just kind of built a little PR machine. We had friends who wrote letters on our behalf. We actually had people saying, man, we've heard so much about your group. We can't wait to hear your next concert. And we hadn't even played a concert, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so we were pretending, but we kind of knew what we were talking about. But it was very expensive. 
And uh, so we used our our airline miles and we stayed in friends' houses. We would all travel uh, very often to Rochester, New York <clears throat> to do some work for a week or two and or here and there. Uh, thanks to the Yamaha Corporation, we we secured a few important uh, short performances at major music conventions across the country. My former teacher, Mike Ewald, I, when I saw him in May after I had resigned from Dallas Brass, I told him I didn't know what we were going to do. Uh, and he said, well, if you start a new group, I'll let you have the closing night at the International Trumpet Guild Conference a year from now. And that was one of our first concerts wow, a year later. That's great. Uh -huh. And that's because people like Mike stepped up and uh, and believed in us. So when other people encourage you and believe in you, you you either believe them and and buy in and trust them and start believing yourself or you don't. So we decided to believe. And we sat down with yellow pads and made databases of everybody we knew and we got to work. But the money was going out like crazy and Jeanette and I uh, were in the position to apply for credit cards. Um, we figured out, you know, if we just do this and that, we won't have to sell our house this year. If we can get the group on the road in one year, maybe we'll get through this. So we ended up, I, I need to go back in the records, but it's around 120 grand that we uh, went into debt. And so this sounds, I would not recommend this now <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. in those days it was actually possible to build a group that could tour full time. And that's very difficult now. Very difficult. There were, you know, there were several brass groups touring. Uh, forget brass. There were chamber groups touring full time all over the States and Europe, uh, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, but not anymore. But anyway, we, uh, we filled out credit cards, applications and zero interest for six months. And we kept careful track. And when that six months was up, we transferred to a new credit card. And I'm sure our credit rating was just, wow. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm sure it was awful. We were, we were on credit at very low interest for quite a while. And that's how we paid for uh, trips that were expensive. And we didn't pay uh, the for our, ourselves at all. And we did pay the two guys that helped us out. And in a year, in that year, we were able to book a full tight budget season for the next year so our wow. two buddies hit the road in with us. one year and uh -huh. you were basically and, working every day on it and so yeah oh, some of those that was just that was it i i lost my chops i was a businessman i was teaching beginner french horn to make enough money to survive you know sorry horn players and uh, <laughs> but you do what you have to do and we just believed. And there were some days I would come home from teaching and then I would do work for the group. And then I would pick up the trumpet and think, wow, I'll never be able to play again. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we hit the road. And uh, after the second full year of touring, we uh, were nearly debt free. Wow. That's great. That's really incredible. And to so me, that's I wouldn't like really recommend a vision and just 100% being all in. Well, and there's something very motivating about being in a tight spot and almost desperate, but calm, you know, hmm. because you mm -hmm. just know, you just know it's the right thing to do. And you right. have, you know, comrade in arms type of feeling, you know, like I got your back. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, and and just amazing things, and also just words of encouragement. Um, you may have seen in the book I mentioned Robert Thompson, who's just a phenomenal guy. He was our other trumpet player for the first two years before Rex Richardson, mm-hmm. and uh, I was in a real slump, just like I'm not sure this is going to work, you know. And I'm looking at all this debt and this little ballet and our three sons and 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 all the pressures and. Uh, I guess Bob caught wind of that somehow, and he sent a fax that I still have pinned up on my office. And it's that picture of the kind of a oh, cartoon yeah, right. of a, the big yeah. crane swallowing the big frog, but the frog has its front whatever's hands around the neck of the crane so he can't swallow him, you know. <laughs> and it just said, never give up. And uh, it's, boy, that's just, that's it was stuff like that that just kept you going. Yeah, that's really important. You know, well, here's a couple of other questions about your playing career. You've played, for example, with Houston and Dallas, and you've played under some great conductors. Could you name, just for interest, a couple of the great conductors for you that you've played under, and what qualities did they have, you think, that made them so great? Well, of course, I think of of Japan Sweden, you know, with Dallas, who's now with New York. And that was, wow, wow. there's a lot he could say that I won't say. Well, he's, yeah, I've heard that he's but like a he's, really scary guy to play under. Yes, and uh, but uh, what a phenomenal musician, and to witness um, the the personal and the corporate struggles in the orchestra, um, but to also hear the the result, you know, and uh, and sometimes that you you ask at what cost, you know, but. But that it was phenomenal music making, and uh, he, you know, he made my my first tour to Europe with an orchestra possible. You know, um, playing Mahler six with Tim Anderson, my buddy from Dallas Brass days. Right, right. Gail Williams, I think, playing extra, and Gail was there. Yes, it was just a phenomenal time. Ryan Anthony, who we miss dearly, uh, was dealing with his first round of treatments with, you know, multiple myeloma, so he Mm -hmm. couldn't travel with us but Manny Lariano was on the trip with us and it was just a phenomenal thing and um, uh, to experience playing under him was was truly stretching and and you 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 really uh, I think most of us you know uh, are stronger because of it but lots of amazing and stressful stories related to that as well yeah and I was really fortunate to play under uh, Fabio Luisi, who's their new conductor. Mm-hmm. And uh, in his first performance, uh, before he was named as the, the next director, but uh, with Heldenleben. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget that week. And he was such a different personality. And that's what's great about different musicians, different conductors. But his was uh, interesting. It felt like he reined the orchestra in on the first day. And it felt like, oh, this is interesting. And he just kind of got us together and got our attention. It was kind of like the first day of school, you know, in junior high. <laughs> not like, not that we were acting like junior high kids, but you have to establish your principles on day one. You know, you have mm-hmm. to establish your discipline, whatever model of discipline you have on day one. You can't get tougher on day two. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that, you but can that's get, true, probably. Yeah, you can get easier 
you can you can always relax uh, the rules. So the first day he wasn't rude or anything like that, but it was it was it felt a little um, boxy. And and then we had concerts. You know, we had the four rehearsals and then concerts on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it was like a an incredible phrase with a peak being on Sunday. And Thursday night was like, oh, this is really good. And it was kind of like he let us go. He gave us his opinion, and then he trusted the orchestra. And I think, you know, I, I it's really, actually, I've enjoyed being an, a guest in these orchestras um, because it's, it, you have a different view. You know, you watch the struggles that each orchestra goes through. I've, I've seen the struggles in Fort Worth and Houston and Dallas and, and, and other orchestras. And it's, it's, there's something interesting about being the extra guy where you, I don't know, it's hard to, to express, but I've enjoyed the view and I've enjoyed the camaraderie and the welcoming spirit of these, of these great people. Uh, but it was really, that was a fascinating week uh, to watch him, you know, control the horses and then let them go and gallop yeah, away. Yeah. And it, the orchestra sounded so fresh and so free and yet they had all that tenacity and all that focus that Yap had brought to the orchestra. So that's that to me was a really fun story to see unfold. And I think once they get swinging, you know, full time post pandemic with them, it's going to be incredible. Wow. Uh, Hans great. Graf was really a fun experience. Um, the piece that eluded me for years was Mahler too. I mean, for decades, you know, like a lot of brass players in high school, that was hearing that piece. Uh, was kind of what told me I had to had to play music. You know? Yeah, that's such a great piece. And so many times I missed opportunities to either see it, and don't you love it when people say, "Hey, I saw Mahler too." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's how it is, you know. Listening to music is great, but seeing it is such a wow. It's a great. It's, a, it's such a. I don't know. It's it's just the way it should be, and uh, so. I, I saw the sublist announcement for Houston Symphony. I didn't know Mark Hughes, but I, I, uh, I thought, man, I would love to play with Houston Symphony. And uh, so I looked at the list and I thought, well, I'll, I'll go down. And then I looked at their season for the next year and what was on there, the piece I had never played, Mahler II. I thought, okay, I'm taking this audition. Maybe I'll get lucky. And about a third of the way there, it's about a three-hour drive, I almost turned around and said, I, nah, I'm just not going to do this. But I just kept driving, and I took the audition, and next thing you know, I'm on the schedule to play Mahler II the next year. Wow, that's great. So anyway, it wasn't with Hans Groff that time, but I, I think it was the second time that I got to play Mahler II with him. And uh, it was, he had can't remember the circumstances but it was i think his last concert with the orchestra as the music director and i'm just i'm playing the offstage first stuff you know Ooh, and that's hard this is exciting stuff you know and uh it's the big the choirs there it's a big time when the first time we've run through it and i did that da, da, and mm -hmm. i put a little shine on it Oops, just a <laughs> because little. Because he's German, right? Just, <laughs> of course, he is German. So <laughs> I just put a little shine on it, and he shouted out, 
Nuve Prato. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, there are a lot of people there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so we did it again and no comment, you know. And then, you know, the, the section assured me everything was fine and all that. And uh, so at the first performance, um, the, he's big on the monitor backstage. And I played those first two notes, you know, and I just decided to play, as we said, with the spirit of improvisation, like I'm making this up. Here's what I have to say and honoring his request. So I gave him my best and, uh, on the monitor, he put his hand on his heart, shook it, uh, his head it went up and down. I was like, wow, okay. Wow, that's great. <laughs> what a crazy week. But that was that was exciting. And uh, I have to thank that orchestra as well. I got to do Mahler 2 again. And I think you know Andy Lott. Um, yeah, sure. Uh-huh. And Andy Stetson. They were playing extra that week along with me. And uh, it was such a gratifying thing. You know, it's one of those things that uh, there, I think there are two moments I cry in music. Uh, this, that one of those last moments in Mahler 2 and, and in Elgar's Nimrod. But mm-hmm. at the very end, you know, Andy and Andy uh, came onto the stage and Andy Lott, my former student, stood next to me and we're all wailing at the end of Mahler 2. And that was like, wow. That's this great. Is, Side by side. <laughs> you know, I remember once when I was with Utah Symphony, uh, we used to rehearse in a really old, decrepit Christian science building and then would play our concerts in the Mormon Tabernacle. And we were doing, I think it must have been our final rehearsal before we went to the dress rehearsal in the Tabernacle. And we got to the last, you know, the big last E flat major chord. And mm. it was a really old, decrepit building, as I said, and there was an earthquake. And so we're playing that last chord and I could feel <laughs> the earth, you know, rumbling under my feet. And I thought it was the bass from the chord and a Bravanella conductor cut off, cut off the orchestra, but it was still going on. And, <laughs> and so he started to talk to the orchestra, look, two after letter B, you need to do this or something like that. And the associate conductor ran up to him and said, maestro, maestro, we're having an earthquake. And he stopped for a minute actually for a few seconds. And he said, okay, so two after letter B, we need to do this. And fortunately, nobody was hurt. The building didn't collapse. Wow. That shows you the power of that one piece where you're in an earthquake and you think it's the piece. That's awesome. That's so great. So listen, um, before we move on, maybe you'd like to say a few words about Ryan Anthony who passed away recently. Yeah, I would. Um, Such a special person. You know, Ryan was a a prodigy. He was a star when he was a little kid. And uh, I recently saw something he wrote. I think he was in the eighth grade uh, that he had to present to some music teacher's club or something. And he had to talk about all his accomplishments. <laughs> it was <laughs> phenomenal. What, what he had done by eighth or ninth grade is like, get out of town. But, but Ryan and I, um, we got to know each other slowly. We, uh, we didn't really, you know, we just didn't know each other. And he's, oh, Ryan, I still speak in present tense. You know, his spirit is so strong. And, you know, when people say rest in peace to a guy like Ryan, I'm going, I don't think, don't think it's going to happen. I think he's, uh, <laughs> Keep moving. you know, I think Tuesday is challenge day in heaven and Gabriel's having to practice. You know, yeah. so. <laughs> but, uh, but Ryan and I have it. He, we joke about it a lot, but, uh, when uh, we were looking for um, 
we had an opening in rhythm and brass when Bob Thompson did his two years with us. And then he decided to move to Vienna. So we needed a trumpet player and we had a full-time schedule. So we put out some feelers and we had played at a church in Memphis. And I remember playing there and, you know, how people go, oh, there's a guy who plays trumpet in our church who's really good. You go, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember being in Decorah, Iowa one time and at a reception after a concert. And this couple said, oh, our son plays the trumpet. Oh, that's nice. You know, and then they said his name is uh, Steve Hendrickson. You know, he's principal trumpet of the Nationals. <laughs> oh, right. he, yes, your son does play the trumpet. Well, this fellow they had spoken about was Ryan Anthony uh, in his up and coming years as a pro. And uh, so anyway, somehow Ryan got our information and heard that we had an opening in Rhythm and Brass. And he um, sent a cassette tape, and I still have it. It's got his, he's written on it, Ryan Anthony demo, and it's got some amazing stuff on it. Well, long story short, we did a very sh limited search, and, you know, we, I, we loved Ryan's recording and some others that came in. Uh, we happened to cross paths um, with Rex Richardson, and he played with us, and that, that kind of ran its course, and we ended up hiring Rex. Well, you know, to visit with Ryan years later, even in clinics, he'll always, that we've, or sessions we've been in, say, oh, yeah, Whip's the guy that didn't hire me <laughs> for Rhythm <laughs> Brass. And by the way, I was homeless at the time and living in my car, and that was true. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. And uh, so anyway, we had that that banter going, you know. That's and, great. Uh, and then when I was teaching at the University of Arkansas, um, Ryan was with Canadian Brass, and uh, he, had, he sent me an email that says, we have an opening, would you consider auditioning for Canadian Brass? And I said, oh, I'm... I'm my touring days are winding down with rhythm and brass and we're all teaching full time. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I, I finally met Ryan uh, when I moved to Baylor uh, in 2002. <clears throat> I think it was 2003 at, at the Texas Music Educators Conference and Canadian Brass played. And I went down and we had a nice visit. Seemed like such a great guy. And several years later, he uh, got the job in Dallas. And uh, he said, I need to figure out who to use around here. And he just happened to talk to Rex Richardson. And Rex said, well, Whiff's just down the highway. You know, you should give him a call. So I, I remember the orchestra calling and I got to do, uh, I love that that last trumpet part on Petru on the uh, pine, on uh, that, 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 that. Oh, ba, 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 ba. The oh, Rite oh, of Spring. Oh, okay. <laughs> got it, got it. The fourth trumpet part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Digga, 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 digga. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. That's yeah. And, uh, and so that went well and just had a ball. And uh, so Ryan just, he, he kept giving me opportunities. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it was just, uh, and we just kept doing our thing there. And Do you know the story about Ryan? Oh, I'm sorry, I interrupted the story oh, about Ryan and, and his lessons with Bernie Adelstein. Oh, I've heard a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the one that I heard was that, of course, he won this competition and the prize was he'd get to play the Artunian with the Cleveland Orchestra, I think at age 15, which is pretty phenomenal. Yeah. And he got to take some lessons with Adelstein. And he knew nothing of orchestral excerpts at that time. Right. You, you know this story? So Keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so he, uh, he had his first lesson with Adelstein and 
so at the end of the lesson, you know, Adelstein said, um, or he asked Adelstein, what do you want me to uh, bring for next week? And Adelstein said, yeah, bring some excerpts, you know, pictures, something like that. And so he went home to his dad and he says, boy, I don't, I, I don't get this guy at all. He want, wants me to bring some photos to him. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You got to love it. Yeah. Oh. yeah. So he, he was be always nice. the soloist and always doing yeah. the, the crazy stuff. And yeah. Uh, but he, he learned those excerpts. <laughs> yeah, he certainly did, boy, and hell. Oh, so. But it was just, it was so great. And, uh, and we just, he was so generous. And, uh, and it was really meaningful because Tim Anderson had been playing extra with Dallas Symphony after he left Dallas Brass. So to have all those chances to sit next to Tim and then Ryan's section. And mm -hmm. he, he changed the culture of that entire orchestra. Wow. Well before he was diagnosed. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just his spirit. He loves to have fun. He's got a huh. great laugh and he doesn't take himself seriously. You know, I've heard Kevin Finnemore, his second trumpet, you know, they, they would carpool cause they're neighbors. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kevin tells a story of feeling so dejected after making some mistake in a concert and Ryan's like duck feathers, let it roll off, man. It's not a big deal. Just always whatever. So, so many great stories. And I would say that the time I, it really hit me that Ryan was had a special spirit. Was his first visit to Baylor, and I I had a quintet or two get ready for him. And uh, this was going to be our first day together. You know, with any this was uh, early on in our relationship. And I said, uh, "How about this Cayman quintet? It's very it's beautiful. It's short. Uh, it's the last piece he wrote. He wrote it for Canadian Brass. I think you'll enjoy it." So they worked it up and they did a good job. And little did I know how important that piece was to Ryan. It was just happenstance or providential. I don't know which. They played it, and we had a, a really good crowd there from the chamber music class. And it became this incredible emotional experience. And he talked about uh, being on tour in Europe and being away from his family, his wife and his kids, who were quite young, and the tragedy of 9-11. And this was the piece they played every night in those coming days. Uh, to homage, in homage, you know, to to those folks, and it was incredible. I'll never forget that coaching, and that's how it was every time Ryan came to Baylor, and it was just this overused word, but it truly was transformative. And uh, so we had him on a regular basis, and I'm happy to say that after three years of having to cancel, he was able to join us this past January. Uh, before he passed away. And it was incredible.